Welcome to episode number three of The Funding Coach. My name is Don Gooding, and I'm the founder of Four Colors of Money for Entrepreneurs, a blog, podcast, training videos, and other resources, all designed to help you figure out what's the right mix of bootstrapping, grants, loans, and equity, and especially figure out what you should be doing now to get the right color of money for you. Here on The Funding Coach, I help real businesses with real funding problems so that you can figure out how to start and grow your business. In this episode, I interview Amanda O'Brien, who co-founded Dry Rhubarb Winemaker 1820. I started coaching Amanda way before the company got launched, but at this point, the company's made it through their initial small run, sold out too soon, which is kind of a good problem. They battled to get their tasting room opened, and now they have to figure out how to fund the second season of dry rhubarb wine. Because of the nature of their funding challenges, I'm sorry, but I have to make some of the interview available just on our Entrepreneurs Only membership podcast. That's to protect Amanda in case she needs to raise equity soon, although she isn't raising money right now. In either case, I hope you enjoy the interview. Amanda O'Brien of 1820, welcome to The Funding Coach. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, now you and I have known each other for some time, uh, but can you give a little background on yourself and then how 1820 got started? Of course. Um, I grew up on Peaks Island, um, right off the coast of Portland, so I'm a a Maine girl. I left and then then returned, Um, and I have been heavy into marketing and specifically digital marketing and putting together events and programming around that for the past 10 years or so. Um, in that journey, I have I became friends with my now business partner, Pete. We both worked in radio and um, had a lot of the same um, interests and we're both pretty curious people. And um, he was making wine from rhubarb and he was pretty excited about it. And anytime anyone hears wine from rhubarb, you have the same reaction of like, oh, yeah, it's neat, um, but I don't want to try that. <laughs> uh, and I ended up trying it at a, at a party that we were both at. And it's it's great. It was a, it was already a really, um, a really well balanced wine. Um, there was some grape involved. And so we just kind of were talking more about that. And it's like, if you could get this to just rhubarb, I think that the market and Portland and Maine would would love this as as an offering. So, yeah, we drank some more wine and made some bad decisions and brought 1820 wines to market officially this past July. So this is all still super new. Well, that's very exciting to go from the, you know, the glass of wine literally to actually delivering it to the market. Generally speaking, uh, how have you been funding the business so far? Has it been mostly your own and Pete's resources? Yeah, we, we, I mean, and that was a part of the conversation too. Is so what, you know, what do you have to put into this? I mean, as businesses go, we have less costs to start up than, than many, many others, but there are still significant costs. Um, 
we both have, you know, families and, and jobs and lives and things. So uh, we both kind of talked about what we could put in personally. There was a, a personal loan was taken out, uh, some family and friends pitched in, and then, you know, small savings and like a retirement IRA cash out. And the rest has just been through our pocket, in my pocket. Yeah, which is a classic way, you know, a little bit from here, a little bit from there. So you've you've gotten through the the first season. And as I recall, you made wines and people loved it so much, you actually ran out, right? Yes, yes, yes. Which we are told is a good problem to have, but still feels uh, a bit uncomfortable when you, you work so hard to make something and now the, the market wants and people are asking for it and you have to say, we're out of that right now. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking that for season two of 1820, which is what you're looking at now, that you're going to want to buy a lot more rhubarb uh, at the beginning of the season and then be able to keep on making it. Uh, have yeah. you started to try to size up how much more rhubarb you want to be buying? Yeah. So last year we bought uh, over 3,000 pounds of rhubarb. And this year we want to do at least three times as much. And really it feels like the game is as much rhubarb as we can get, we can we can make things with. Um, but right now we're, we're shooting for at least, you know, at least nine, 10,000 pounds of rhubarb. Wow, that's that's a lot of rhubarb. I'm trying to imagine what that would look like all in one place. Uh, <laughs> what time of year is the rhubarb crop that they're harvesting and then they're selling to you? Sure. So one of my favorite parts about this process is that rhubarb is a spring crop. So it comes up before anything else. Um, and it loves growing in Maine. It loves cold winters. Uh, it pops right up. So we get to buy from the farmers in the spring, which is, you know, traditionally when they uh, need money the most in their calendar because they're investing in in the summer, um, you know, getting the land ready, getting the, the soil, you know, getting their seeds and getting in. Um, but then they're maybe out from the from the fall harvest, so it's a great time of year. Um, there is a second pick option which we've been working on, which is later in you know July, early August. But the rhubarb is physically very different from first pick in spring to second pick in in the summer. So that's something we're kind of learning too. It's gonna it's a lot more work for not as much of the juice, which is what we're ultimately looking for. And so when you're buying 10,000 pounds of rhubarb, what's the price per pound that you have to pay? Uh, somewhere in like the $2. It's it's an inexpensive crop for sure. Yeah, it's a weed. I mean, it, it's not hard for them to manage. So then, yeah, if you want to buy 10,000 pounds, that's $20,000-ish. Uh, what are the other funding needs you might have in the upcoming year? Any upgrades to equipment? Uh, and I know you have a tasting room now. Anything additionally you need to be doing there? Yeah. Uh, so we have a tasting room, which is in the same space as our as our production, uh, which is has, has pros and cons. To buy 10,000 pounds of rhubarb, uh, right now we like to say adoringly that we're doing everything the hardest way possible. Um, so 10,000 pounds of rhubarb at this point means Pete and I will be washing, cutting, and processing them by hand. So anything we can do to upgrade equipment, some type of machine uh, for cutting or for washing, um, we then have to take the rhubarb and part of our process is to freeze it. So we send it to Americold, which is a palletized freezer space. Um, so any help in like not renting a U-Haul to get that done. 
uh, and then all the way back to pressing it. Then we can bring it back and we press it. So it's it's a difficult process and right now. It's just him and I, and we both have full time jobs. So we're trying to cram this in and like overnights on weekends. Right. So yeah, upgrades and equipment, um, upgrades for the space, and maybe getting some help, especially during the production part. It's pretty fast. So getting more bodies in there, other than just our family and friends who are are probably pretty sick of us asking for help cutting rhubarb at this point. Yeah, may, maybe the first 3,000 pounds, it was okay. But this next batch, yeah, so you're going to have to hire some people. Yeah, and then with the tasting room, we never had a, a business operating at the same time, right? So how could one of us work the tasting room while cutting rhubarb? So I think part something I'm thinking of is also like someone to help in the tasting room. And then we also self-distribute, which means we drive every time someone orders a case of wine for a store, we drive. So like when Golden Harvest and Kittery wants to order a case of wine, yay, that's great. It's also two hours <laughs> to drive down and back. And not only do you have a full-time job, you have a kid as a single mom and uh, an old house on an island uh, and a mortgage, et cetera. So, so there are a lot of financial constraints I know that you're facing. So what are the financing, the funding options that you've been looking at? Because uh, I'm guessing that first year revenue hasn't generated enough cash to fund everything you're going to need for year two. Is that right? I hate to cut off the interview at this point, but Amanda and I got into some topics that securities lawyers might consider to be forward-looking statements. And even though 1820 wasn't actively fundraising from accredited investors when we talked, I think it's possible she might be within the next six months. So to make sure she can do a 506B instead of a 506C offering, I have to keep the rest of our interview over on our members-only podcast. The good news is that if you're an entrepreneur, you're welcome to become a free member and access the members-only podcast. Head over to fourcolorsofmoney.com, that's F-O-U-R, colorsofmoney.com, and you should be able to join with just a few clicks. We will need to be able to see that you're an entrepreneur and you're not looking to invest because we're trying to create a safe haven for entrepreneurs to share their funding challenges without doing what the SEC calls general solicitation. And if you're not an entrepreneur or would-be entrepreneur, well, I'm sorry, but my first priority is helping entrepreneurs. I will be able to share some of my analysis in the next podcast, which should be useful given what you've heard so far about 1820. And of course, there's lots of great blog posts over at fourcolorsofmoney.com, including one explaining this 506B and 506C issue. In any case, I hope to chat with you again soon here on The Funding Coach.